Friday, February 2nd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and welcome to another bonus episode of Market Foolery. And just like the bonus episode that we did in September and in December, this one is really long and it's got nothing to do with investing. So, if this is your first time listening to Market Foolery, let me tell you, this is not the typical episode. We will be back on Monday with our usual fare here at Market Foolery, our usual look at business news and investing. We'll be back Monday. And if you're someone who's a longtime listener and you're like, I like what you guys do on Market Foolery, I'm not interested in the bonus episode, then by all means, pull the ripcord and we'll see you on Monday. But for this bonus episode, we taped this on Wednesday afternoon. This was me, Bill Barker from Motley Fool Asset Management, and Matt Greer, longtime Motley Fool radio producer and Market Foolery host, Matt Greer. We hung out in the studio, and since we are just days away from the start of the Winter Olympics, we talked a bit about that. We dug into a little bit of Motley Fool history and uh, and more. Plenty of tangents. Uh, so, with that, Dan Boyd, our man behind the glass, let's get started. I just like Max's idea that assassins, when they're starting out, yeah. they get essentially easy jobs. It's right. like, look, this right. is not... Right. This is not a, a. We're not asking you right. to take out James Bond. We've got this octogenarian right. who lives in Del Boca Vista, Florida, and uh, we feel, we feel like this is. Look for you to get your feet wet. Tell you what, just go back to the Motley Fool Radio Show and look at the guests from 1998, 1999, and start there. I, <laughs> that's not a bad. <laughs> okay. Don that's, Ho. Let's. That's that, Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, we talked about this the other day that that there are plenty of people, and by the way, some of them work at this company, who have no idea that the Motley Fool had a radio show in the 1990s. And then I don't know about you guys, but anytime I'm with, usually it's someone younger at the company, and I'm explaining to them this is what the show is. David and Tom hosting it. It was live for three hours every Saturday. Yeah. Um, And so even before I get into Telling them this is what the show was. This is who we, you know. Yes, it was a call-in show, but just a lot of people are just stunned. Wow, because that's. I mean, that's a grind. That's a to- that's a total grind to be like live three hours every Saturday. Yeah. Then you. Then once I start to say, well, here are some of the guests we had. We, you know, it was a three-hour show. It's Motley, so we would have a business person or an author. We would, you know, we had. Jeff Bezos back when he was when the company was obviously a whole lot smaller, uh, but then we would say, "Hey, one hour, let's have a guest from the world of entertainment. Let's ha- let's let's make it motley. Let's have beloved Hawaiian singer Don Ho." I think if you recall virtually any episode of The Love Boat, you've probably got the cast of. Yes. Uh, part of the Motley Fool radio yes. show. Mary Lou Henner. She. I don't know if she's on the Love Folk, but <clears throat> she might have had a. a, a if you were, if you had to come up with your top, because you were there for all of it. Mac produced. Mac. It. Mac. Are we uh, starting now? Is this it? As far as you know, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms, in terms of guests, I mean the the one that always leaps to mind for me, uh, and I'm not saying she's number one on the list, but the the unintentional comedy of Stephanie Powers. Who is probably best known from uh, the the TV show Heart to Heart? Yep. Um, Stephanie Powers. Um, one, having some sort of live bird in her home, presumably yeah. that she owned, like a parrot. It or was something, a parrot. Yep. At, squawking in the background, and it wasn't until one of the Gardner brothers said something like, "I mean, it squawked a few times yep. before." One of the guys finally said, uh, "Hey, do you have a bird?" It was disruptive. It was a little disruptive, but then beyond that, uh, she appeared to be uh, inebriated. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I know. I later heard because I had booked her. I later heard that she had done. I think it was a wine tasting show before ours. So you know, correlation, causation, <laughs> hard to say. Um, but yeah, there were so many things that went wrong with that interview. I mean, the bird, the parrot, for starters, it's always tough to have a conversation um, when a parrot's squawking. And then call waiting. In, by the way, in the same room that you are. Maybe yes. go to another room in your own house. Yes. Here's yes. an idea. And then call waiting went off. And then Tom and David, to their credit, just embraced the absurdity of the, absurdity of the whole interview. And I had written one question, 
And the whole idea, by the way, that we had booked Stephanie Powers is I had read a New York Times business section article on how she was really getting into her own investing, and she was investing in stocks like Dell. So it wasn't that, you know, it, it wasn't near as absurd at the time as it sounded. And I mean, she was, it was a good get because, you know, as you said, heart to heart peaked in the early 80s, and somehow she was available 18 years later. <laughs> To do our show, so I mean, well, I'm you, not sure how I landed that. You say that she was best known <laughs> for Heart to Heart, but I've gone to her IMDb page, and uh, the four things which uh, are profiled here is what she's known for include uh, Experiment in Terror. Don't know it. Don't know it. Die, die, my darling. Don't know it. Heart to Heart, uh, and the number one, and this may be a little dated, I'm not sure, but it appears to be a movie, the poster for which involves John Wayne with uh, Maureen O'Hara stretched over him about, he's, he's about to spank her. Maureen O'Hara or Stephanie Powers? Uh, Probably Maureen I think it's Maureen O'Hara, because yeah. she seems to be the, the number two build entity here uh, in the movie. But I don't, McClintock? this may be a little bit dated in terms of the kind of movie poster that one would see today. I yeah. think I think that's yeah. probably fair. Uh, by the way, that's one of the things I love about IMDb, is you go there, you look up an actor or actress, and whatever you think, these are the four biggest things this person has done, has done in their career. IMDb is there to just say, nope, what are, <laughs> it's these four. And some you can sort of argue about, and then there are others where you just go, ah, there, there aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of choices there, so I'm going to go with that. By the way, Ed McMahon, who is a longtime sidekick to Johnny Carson on the Tonight Show, that was a great interview. Former full radio guest. Yes, well, no, that's what I'm saying. That that was a great interview because yep. he's like he just that's one of those people who just embraces who he is. So he just leaned into like, yeah, yep. I'm Ed McMahon. Um, you know, he he's got the gig on the Tonight Show. He's got the um, what is it the 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 sweepstakes. He yep. was the spokesman for the the publishers. What, is that what it was? The publishers, yeah, publishers yeah. clearinghouse. Clearinghouse. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and just totally leaned into it. And he had made a bad investment, I think, in psychedelic paper. So I'm not sure what that means exactly, but yeah, <laughs> he was he was so so good. And Stephanie Powers. You just threw two words together that don't go together. What is psychedelic paper? I'm not sure, but I remember something about psychedelic paper and Agnet Man. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I just remember bits and pieces. We had Yogi Berra also in that same stretch, um, and he said, "You know, I say these yogiisms, and I don't even know when they're yogiisms." And Tom and David are like, "That's a yogiism." There you go. You're right there. there. Psychedelic paper feels like something that, like, if in the same way there's a Bitcoin mania, and in the '90s there was a dot com mania. If at any point there was in the world of business a paper mania. So I'd be like, oh, I've got psychedelic paper, and it's like, okay, well, now we're at the top. If, yeah, if yeah. I've only allowed one guess, I'm figuring that Peter Max was involved in That's, some way. He mentioned Peter Max. Who is, who is Peter Max? Peter Max uh, did the type of art that uh, he was not the artist for Yellow Submarine, Beatles movie, but uh, that art was uh, highly influenced by Peter Max's style. Okay, so uh, stylized animation. Yes. Well, okay. he he was a uh, he was an artist. Okay, so uh, I'm I'm saying Peter Max is the only thing that comes to mind for psychedelic paper. He said that he said something about it being in the Peter Max era. So I remember that now. Uh, but before we get to the Winter Olympics, which I want to do, um, any other guests that you just that just come to mind that you think th this was. I when I tell people about guests that we had, because I, 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 Ed McMahon and Stephanie Powers, those are two examples that I use. Those are great. Yeah, there are, there are some really nice interviews that I that I won't talk about. What I'll talk about? <laughs> no, actually, this is a great interview. People we, who are qualified to be on the show exactly. and delivered information to exactly. our audience, no, no, no. but who wants to re, you know remind so themselves boring. of those episodes? No, a great. When we could talk about Kenny Baker. That is true. Kenny Baker, the guy um, inside R two D two. Who we interviewed from a sci-fi expo show, and I just remember halfway through the interview, he asked what show this was, and it was a live interview. And ideally, you kind of want to work that out beforehand. So that was disappointing. Not that anyone is listening right now, but any anyone who's ever worked in publicity of any kind who who, is, yeah. who happens to hear that is just like nodding, like, "Oh yeah, no, I've been there." Where like you. Yeah. The publicist works it out ahead of time, and then they're like, "What is this? Who am I talking to?" It was terrible. We um, a really great interview we did 
a few years later was with Mr. Rogers, and that was on our then NPR radio show. And he was great. He was everything you wanted him to be. He joined us from a studio in Pittsburgh, and the guy is just a complete saint. And the two things I remember, oh, three things. He gave this wonderful answer about Enron and why people do things, you know, like you know Enron, uh, why that happens, and gave this just beautiful answer about people's insecurity and all of that. The second thing is he asked David and Tom if they wanted to hear from Henrietta Pussycat, which, if you watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, was one of the puppets. And Mr. Rogers was the voice of all of the puppets. So just let that sink in. Wait a minute, all of them? I'm pretty sure. No, maybe there's Lady Elaine. Maybe the, the woman did Lady Elaine. But I think he did most, if not all, of the puppets. Okay, so I like to think that on our radio show, when he was in that studio in Pittsburgh, and and if he asked you, would you like to hear from Henrietta Pussycat? You're not saying no to Mr. Rogers. <gasps> no, there is one answer. Yes, yes, I would. I like to think that he actually had the puppet in the studio. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he did. We don't know. I pre- we don't know. And then the third thing about that interview is in our buy, sell, or hold, where we say if the following were a stock, we ask him, buy, sell, or hold Homer Simpson, and he says. I don't know who that is. So we introduced Mr. Rogers to Homer Simpson. I think they're about to make a movie. Yep. Tom Hanks has just signed on yep. to play Mr. Rogers. Uh, and I don't know what the premise is. It's his friendship or something with somebody. I, I yeah, I think it's it, it, the thing I read is it's based on um, the writings of someone who was assigned to write a profile of Fred Rogers and then just. Was like ah, I don't think I want to do this, and then he ends up striking up a friendship with him. Tom Hanks plays a lot of real life people. He's so good. Captain Sully, Captain Phillips, Walt Disney, Walt Disney, Ben Bradley, Jim Lovell. I'm sure there are others. Woody, the 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 doll, Forrest Gump, Forrest Gump, real person. Not a lot yeah. of people know that that kid yeah. that became grown up. Yeah, big and big. That's a real person. Also somewhere. based on a true story. Yep. Yeah. yeah. All of them. Well, not all, but most. <laughs> a lot. A lot of the acclaimed stuff. Uh, so, Winter Olympics coming up, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on this uh, because uh, we talk about overrated, underrated all the time. And I was thinking about this about sort of like, well, what are what are overrated Winter Olympic events? And I don't think there are any. For me, anyway, there are no. First of all, there are fewer events in the Winter Olympics than the Summer Olympics, and when I just think about those events, I'm like, I don't think there's really anything that's overrated. Do you have anything? You know, what's the whole Nordic? They don't really show much of it, but what's the the biathlon? The biathlon, yeah. You know, I mean, I know, I know that takes a lot of work, and I know that I'm probably right now not in you know tip-top shape, so I probably couldn't do any part of that. But I don't, I don't find that particularly. Interesting. So I I felt that way, but then if you think about sort of probably the origin of that sport, which combines cross country skiing and target practice, it's like oh yeah, uh, for thousands of well not thousands of years, but for for a very long time, that's how people hunted. It's like if you live somewhere where there's a lot of snow, yeah. If uh, if you're looking for um, any kind of meat in your in your meals, but I'm not okay. <laughs> I'm sure you're happy to take the other side of this and call out something as overrated. I don't know that biathlon could ever be overrated because it's not rated. You know, it's getting like ten <laughs> seconds of the, of the total viewing time. That's ten Olympics. seconds I can't have back. <laughs> Do you have anything? Uh, no, it is it is hard because the thing that is by far the highest rated would be the figure skating and and the amount of time that goes into that. Um, so I, I think that it takes away from some of the other things, but they just don't lend themselves to televised viewing as well. Although, um, having been to the Winter Olympics once, I'll say that the televised viewing is is infinitely better for most of those events than actually being there. Yeah, this is like the the thing Dan Heath was saying when uh, when he was talking about peak moments. And yeah. if you think about like going to Disney World, if we're measuring your happiness like every two minutes. Most of the time, it's going to be very, it's going to be rated quite low. Whereas, sort of the the peaks of a Walt Disney World vacation outweigh those many low moments. And it sounds like the Winter Olympics is like that too, because first of all, most of the events are outdoors. 
Yeah, most of the events are outdoors, and most of the events do not lend themselves to live viewing. That's not why they were created. So, if you go and you watch the luge, for instance, you can find a spot on on the course, and you can see people go around essentially one curve, and then they're out of your view. Uh, and if you get up sort of at the top of the course, then you know maybe the way the course is built, it might be constructed in a way that you then get to see another curve or two as they go down. Uh, but it's not, in, it, and certainly if it's zero degrees, or I think that's about what it was when I was at the Olympics, as far as I can remember. Um, you know, whether whether that was back in the forties. This was <laughs> <laughs> back in the greatest Winter Olympics of all time, 1980. Uh, and uh, the the luge, the bobsled, even the downhill skiing, is, which I think is covered very well on TV live. You're really just seeing a, a very small portion of the race, and you just and it always looks kind of the same wherever you are. The skiers are coming down, and and they whoosh by you. It's tough because the and I know that certainly like in the Summer Olympics, track and field is like this. But but um, a pretty significant portion of the Winter Olympics is just measured in nanoseconds, and it's just like great, you're gonna yeah. you're, you're just or hundredths of a second where it's like, yep, uh, that was great. I was reading Sports Illustrated sort of the the preview issue and and a couple of the athletes it's like, yep, she's looking to. Make up for the 2014 games where she came in 0.02 seconds behind the woman who got the gold medal. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> it's true. And it's so amazing that the difference between someone who wins and someone who comes in second. I mean, it's that fine line. I was just watching, as, as part of the prep for our show here, I was watching the replay of Franz Klammer, because that's one of my early memories um, in downhill skiing. French skiing? Um, um, Austrian, I think. Or hung- oh. Uh, Austrian, I think. Okay. I'm, I'm going with that. Could be Hungarian. That's right. No one's listening. Um, yeah, we'll need a fact check. But his he ends up winning the gold, and his run where he won the gold, he's basically he's on the edge. He's about to wipe out the entire time, and he ends up winning the gold because he doesn't wipe out. Uh, in terms of underrated, I've got two. One is the opening ceremonies. The opening ceremonies. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm basically dead inside. But the opening ceremonies of the Winter Olympics and the Summer Olympics, I'm I'm just totally in for those, because particularly like in a year like this in the Winter Olympics, where you have six countries, it's their first Winter Olympics, and basically they're sending a couple of people. There are a couple of countries that I think are just sending one person, and so just for that for that purpose for that person. Their moment when they walk into the stadium and it's like their country gets announced and their flag and they're just like it's like that's fantastic. Who doesn't like that? Do you watch that whole thing? The all the it, it's fantastic in small doses. Uh, the I, whole thing is I, rather lengthy. So the 2016 Summer Games, I watched almost all of that one. Uh, um, and so and what were the highlights? Um, people crying, like people who just walk into the stadium and it hits them for the first time. They're, you know, they're walking into a stadium, which is for some of them, it's the biggest crowd they've ever been in their in their life. And again, it's the lights hit them. They're carrying the flag. Their country gets announced, and people just like there are people who just start burst into tears. Um, uh, the other thing, and and you're right about the figure skating, but to me, the figure skating is not as entertaining as the post medal skating that they do. Where it's basically all right. We've had the figure skating. We've handed out the medals. Well, everybody, let's just relax and have some fun. And it's you know they're they're rocking out. It's it's really more like Blades of Glory, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Will Ferrell skating movie. So good. Um, so those those are my two underrated. Do you have any underrated or no? Uh, I think that uh, for underrated on the it's easier to go. Summer Olympics, I think, for both overrated and underrated, there's a lot more to choose from. Oh yeah, uh, I, I think that uh, you know Winter Olympics. Um, I'd say that that the ice ice dancing to me is is underrated. Uh, oh, underrated, underrated, really? Yeah, that's wow. Okay, go on. Well, you see, like Torville and Dean, right? Yeah, I mean that yep. it, it doesn't get better than that. And I think that it, it does. Because, but go on, <laughs> uh, because the figure skating has gotten so addicted to the jumps and will somebody land a quadruple and and I cannot tell the difference. 
my eye between a quadruple and a triple, and and so it's always going for that. Lot, that one, you know what a lot says? Any of that stuff, uh, and 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 all you're doing is is waiting to see like who lands and who doesn't, which I think detracts from all of the rest of it, which is. Uh, taken out of the ice dancing, which where you just get to, they're not going to fall because they're not doing throws on that. So, it, as an athletic competition, it's not as good uh, because uh, it, it leans more to, toward the art than the athleticism. Uh, but on the other hand, it, you're, it's not being decided by mistakes the way the other ones are. Falls. You know, somebody's. How many, you know, however many decades they've been preparing for this is determined by one fall. Uh, it seems to me to be a, a poor way to uh, try to determine who's the best. Okay, so using that logic, do you like rhythmic gymnastics more than gymnastics? <sighs> I think I've got you here. I, I think. I, I, with the ribbons, with I, the twirling of the ribbons. She's going to twirl the ribbon. She's going to twirl it again. <laughs> No, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, that, that's nice I'm that you saying. embrace the fact that your argument and your desires are illogical. I, I think that's good. No, that's, that, that's not fair because I think both r- rhythmic gymnastics, save your angry emails, rhythmic gymnastics and ice dancing obviously have incredible athleticism. But I think they both suffer, you know, by comparison. Well, there's no tension. Really, right? It, it's it's more sort of uh, celebrating what they can do than what they can't. Right. It's it's more up with people versus the Hunger Games. Wow. Perfect analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Went to both ends of the spectrum with that analogy. Um, we had talked the other day about uh, tug of war and how, for reasons passing any understanding whatsoever, here we go. Tug of war is no longer. Because it once was, it's no longer an Olympic sport. Events that need to be back in the Olympics. Well, and I'll get to my my favorite winter demonstration sport that happened only one year in a second. But but I mean, who's against this? Who is against tug of war? Because that's when I think about the Olympics, the the sports. There there are a lot of sports I like to watch, but but the ones that are sort of the most primal are the ones that are the most basic. Where it's basically it's some form of racing. How fast can you run around this track? How fast can you run a mile? How fast, by the way, can you get from the top of this ice-covered mountain to the bottom of this ice-covered mountain, or ice-covered track, as it were? So you know, the fact that tug of war among the more basic competitions in human history is no longer. Who do we who do we contact about this? Because it's not going to happen in the 2020 Summer Games. And I'm not saying it should happen in the Winter Olympics, although I wouldn't mind if it did. But I feel like 2024, particularly since it's going to be. Where is the tug of war lobby? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Who do we talk to about this? Uh, The pros, the the all stars in the tug of war community. Okay. That's who you got to go to. You know what? That's a better answer than you need to talk to the International Olympic Committee because uh, that's a conversation that involves suitcases full of unmarked bills. Yeah. Well, they they appreciate money, and I do think there could be some good money on uh, on tug of war. Don't you think? In terms of betting, I think there's more intrigue uh, in terms of betting, just in terms of who who's going to win. Yes. So ten people on each side. Yeah. Yep. And you can you can do you can do best two out of three, but I think in the preliminary rounds it's like no, we're doing this once. Yeah. And if you if you lose your footing and you get overtaken, so be it. But why why can't Azerbaijan beat the U.S.? Why indeed? You know, if Iceland That's... can make a, a hell of a run in the World Cup, Iceland, which which has about three hundred thousand people in it, and they can knock out countries in the World Cup. That's we got to get the we got to get tug of war back in, don't we? Uh, yeah, if we have that power, sure. If we're, if we're, I think it lends itself well to television, which is what a lot of it comes down to. Absolutely, I was just thinking about the superstars competition the back in the seventies. Yeah, now, yeah. Now you're going to make it a joke, and and no, I'm not making it a joke because that was that. I mean, it's hard to pick one highlight with the superstars, but I think that it culminated. In the tug of war, yeah, and then I think you had—I don't know if they had the tug of war in the battle of the network stars, which is different. 
They did. Um, they did. They had yes. it in both. And it was okay. the last. It was the last event. So I you had. Wasn't eight, the obstacle course? You had Ooh, ABC, yeah. CBS, and NBC competing, Battle of the Network Stars, yeah. and one of them. There was a point system, and one of them would get knocked out, and then the two, and then the final event. Yeah. Because it was, you know, just sort of the the gripping drama of of primetime stars, you know, tugging you, on. You a know, rope. they were so close. But what would actually be uh, better would be to get, um, you know, Fox and MSNBC and CNN doing that now. <laughs> I mean, there'd, there'd just be a lot, I like a it, lot more emotion. With like, who were you? Re- who were you really rooting for between ABC and CBS and NBC? Yeah, it's yeah. just it's you a, didn't. You weren't behind a network. You were behind individuals. That's true. Like you know. But I think I think if they all want to make some money, this is this is how they do That's it. That's the move. Yeah. Now you uh, don't want everybody in the MSNBC versus uh, Fox News uh, tug of war, um, or you know pistol dueling. I think you got a lot of you got a lot of people who are you know, invested in the outcome there. Well, I'm glad you said the word invested because I was just thinking, let's take this one step further and let's make it financial media, and let's let's get Bloomberg, and CNBC, and a little company I like to call the Motley Fool. And uh, I think that's where our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, comes in, uh, because Dan is absolutely on the uh, the tug of war team. Dan, uh, tug of war f- for those still listening. Uh, tug of war was at one point in time, in the previous century, an Olympic sport. Are you in favor of this idea of bringing it back? And no. if and if so, do you have any recommendations for how it should? Oh work? my gosh, I have thought about this so much. <laughs> I would love to see tug of war come back. Uh, I had an idea where uh, you take like I don't know, take ten people, uh, a ten person team, right? But yep. they have to be drawn from your current Olympians. So like in the summer games, and I feel like tug of war is a summer sport. You pick five men and five women from your team. And that is your tug of war team, and it's the last thing at, right before the closing ceremony. And it's just a single elimination tournament with all the nations that have enough people to uh, join in in the tug of war tournament. Now, I I think that that sort of reduces it. It makes it more of a fun battle of the network stars kind of thing, rather than hey, these are the top athletes in their sport. And so I don't know that you're going to get the Olympics to go along with you. Now, maybe in the exhibition, just like the uh, ice skating or the gymnastics, where we just get to go out and have fun, yeah. it could be one of those new events. Well, so there are. But you can't have a medal. I mean, it's got to be like the top competitors in their field. To be a, a real Olympic event. I mean, if the IOC hates fun as they much as do. you do, oh my goodness! Then, you, yeah, you haven't been paying attention. Right. They love money and they hate fun. If you're NBC, which has the television rights in the United States for the next uh, like twenty years, I think you absolutely want this. Can we go back to the financial media version? Um, you could arrange this. Your pals. I actually, I actually think it's a great idea. The your, financial media tug of war. Your pals on uh, the Twitter thing with some of these CNBC types. Uh, a couple. Yep. You have them on your shows. Sure. I think you have to limit the participants though to personalities, either on air or TV personalities, because nobody cares if there's like studio people like me in the tug of well, war. Well, that just totally blows my case for our team because if you're not going to be on the team, we're going to get destroyed. I I think you're you know are not appreciating how much of a personality you are to the audience out there. Yeah, I think if you've had any time on air, yeah. So that that gets you in there cuz otherwise it's going to be like it's going to be the podcast house and that's I mean, oh boy. You know what? It feels like it feels like an especially good radio segment. Tug of war. Tug of war on radio. It feels like something that I would have tried back in the day. Okay, so back when I was attending uh, the Olympics. Also, when you weren't at the events, you could listen to them on the radio. And um, I tell you what, bobsled and luge do not lend themselves well to radio broadcasting. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> he's taken curve three. He's through it into turn four. Through it, five. I mean, it was. If you're listening, every single run sounded exactly the same, unless there was a crash. I was just going to say, then you're then you're you're in the terrible position of, boy, I really hope there's an accident that causes someone to break some bones. Right, and unlike yourself, I wasn't doing that. No, you would have been like, ah, if I'm going to listen to this, I better get a good crash out of it or two. What do you mean would have been? Still am. <laughs> um, before we get to your Winter Olympic experience, can you just share the? Um, uh, can the, I just share some of this alcohol that I'm about to? Absolutely. 
This the, is sponsored by the whiskey NFAM. in the studio. Motley Fool Asset Management has uh, brought the uh, the whiskey for this particular episode. Go to foolfunds.com, not for whiskey, but for information about stuff at Motley Fool Asset Management. Um, so, way back when tug of war actually was a summer Olympic sport, it wasn't. It was in the days where. Uh, we're okay if countries compete, but we're okay if countries lob in several teams. Yes, and that may, in fact, be at least part of why they decided to stop doing it. Because in 1904, three teams from the United States won gold, silver, and bronze, and that repeated itself in 1908. Yeah, you had the uh, I think the London Police against the Liverpool Police, and and so it, it feels a little bit looking at. Uh, that record from today's vantage point, it looks a little bit less uh, impressive. I like. Uh, look, I'm in favor of this happening no matter what. So whether it's the implementation of Dan's idea that, yeah, you take people from your existing Olympic team, or it's your idea of no, just get, just get the ten biggest and best. Although I don't know, I don't know necessarily what you're. What you're looking for in a tug of war participant, other than mass, but is it just let's just get the ten we, biggest people? Is Do there we, skill? Like, could you have people who are less strong who are better at tug of war, or is it just brute strength? What do you think, Dan? I th- I feel like I I don't know. Maybe maybe this is this is wrongheaded, but I feel like the point of tug of war is not it's a spectacle. It's not a great athletic event. I, I I want to see like Michael Phelps on the tug of war team. You know, I don't I don't want to see some like big dude from North Carolina who I've never heard of or seen before. I want I want to see uh, uh, the stars do the, the tug of war thing. And maybe may this is this is well, dumb. Then we're but, back to battle of the Olympic stars. But but as a demonstration port, uh, sport, or as like a, as Dan said, like the last thing before the closing ceremonies, I'm in on that. Yeah. Well, here's the other thing though, Dan, and 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 you may want to think about this because I feel like you're not taking this seriously. Um, when you think about tug of war, if you're going to go that route. If you have someone who's maybe not quite the swimmer that Michael Phelps is, but they're much better at tug of war, then do they make the Olympic swim team and Michael Phelps doesn't because of the tug of war consideration? All right, so I'm going to answer your question with a question, which I know you're going to love. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the NFL Pro Bowl. Uh, it's a ter- it's a terrible game. Do you guys think the whole captain thing, and then they pick their teammates from the list of potential Pro Bowlers, or I think that's how they do in the NBA too with the NBA All Star game. The All Star game they just started, uh, right? New new twist. Do we? Is that a good idea? And is that something that you could have? Like your country could select your tug of war captain and then they got to pick maybe you know not based on skill or size or anything but whatever criteria they thought was important uh would i i I don't know i'm just i'm just saying like if we're just gonna see a bunch of big dudes pull a rope i mean the world's strongest man competition exists already there are already weightlifting competitions in the olympics i don't think we would need to add that i think that the flavor and character of something like that, just something like team captains in the Pro Bowl and the NBA All-Star Game, and in the uh, Home Run Derby for the MLB, I think that the flavor and character there would make up much more interesting right. than... Uh, Those are all exhibition sports. Exhibition well, games. Well, nobody's going to watch professional tug-of-warists. Not yet. <laughs> just give us a chance. Like I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Is there a tug of war league somewhere like that that I've missed out on? Let's go Cold War on this. Would wouldn't you rather see the best of the U.S. versus the best of Russia? Wouldn't you get a little bit more invested in that than at the end of our the Olympic celebrities games, against their when celebrities? we've been watching nothing but the best of the best in their sports already for three or two or three weeks or however long the Olympics last for? No, I don't. We've already seen it. And in a ridiculous farce that is the idea of tug of war, why don't we throw in our favorite people? Sean White doing tug of war. I don't know he's a Winter Olympic, but whatever. Cool. Make him grow his hair out again, and he can do tug of war. That would be great. (laughs) It's a Samson thing, I guess. It might be. Uh, So, 1980, you're in Lake Placid. You're at the Winter Olympics. I am, yes. And through, do I have this right that it was really through the luck of the, not even the luck of the draw, it was just through the draw because 
your family has got a place up in upstate New York. It's sometime in the late 70s. And presumably, your dad is like, hey, the Winter Olympics are going to be here in a couple of years. Let's put in for tickets. We'll take whatever we can get. So, the way it worked is Lake Placid, uh, this was back when the, the Olympics were smaller, 1980. The Winter Olympics have always been smaller than the Summer Olympics, of course, but in particular back then when they were held the same year, um, a place like Lake Placid, which is roughly as big as, as this uh, studio that we're in right now, <laughs> and got the Winter Olympics, the whole world showing up to Lake Placid. Well, my parents have a place. It's about uh, 40 miles, 30 miles from, from Lake Placid. And as property owners, they were entitled. That was sort of the part of the deal of what Lake Placid got out of agreeing to host it was any uh, property owner was entitled to order a certain number of tickets. And so uh, they did. And it was probably 18 months or so before the actual Olympics. And just sort of there was like a. It was like ordering sushi. You know, we'll take two of this event and four of this event. And uh, Dad was just looking at it and say, "How about the semifinals of the hockey? How about we take six tickets of that?" And sure, and, you know, who knows? It's probably going to be Czechoslovakia versus Finland. But you know, it, cool. And the way things played out, you could see that the for maybe four or five days ahead. The U.S. was lining up to be number two in its division if it won its next game and the game after that, and and would end up playing the Soviets, who were clearly going to win their other half. And they're sort of team two that made it to the semis from Pool A played team one from Pool B, and and you could see that this might happen, and uh, and then it it did. And one of the things that occurred is ABC, day of, was trying to switch the games and switch the US-USSR game from the, I think it was played at like three in the afternoon, to primetime. And back then, uh, the networks didn't have that kind of pull. Uh, ABC was not able to, to get the order of the game switched for TV. And so, uh, the game was played at three, and most people who saw the game didn't didn't see the live version, of course, because it was played on tape delay. So you're there. I was there. Yes. Any memory from the game other than the fact that holy cow, we beat the Soviet Union? Uh, well, one of my memories is that I had argued to my parents that we should um, sell our tickets. But, <laughs> I mean, that that we were obviously going to get destroyed in this game, and uh, people were offering. You know, the face value of the tickets was maybe twenty dollars, twenty five dollars, something like that, and that that people were actually willing to pay something like sixty or eighty dollars, you know, a ticket for this to and uh, I thought scalping was probably a pretty good idea. And I like uh, the fact that you were just financially minded at the age of, you know, fourteen or fifteen, whatever you were, like, look, uh, this is not gonna be a once in a lifetime sporting event that will be memorialized forever. Uh, let's make some money. Let's make some bucks, and then uh, you know this summer we, can we go, go out to dinner. This we go out to dinner, and then take the rest and go to Saratoga this yeah. summer and uh, bet on some ponies. Uh, what I remember is I we had a couple two sort of blocks of tickets, and the way it worked out, uh, there was some switching at in between at the end of periods, uh, and the teams switch, and so I was always I switched from one end of the stadium during first period to the other for second, and then back. And it turned out that I was always on the U.S. goalie side of of the arena, which uh, was too bad when we were scoring goals. But that at the very end of the game, which was completely played down in the U.S. Yeah. defensive end, as as the Russian team looked like they were going to swarm the goal many times, and then the U.S. just you know they kept diving in front of the puck and uh, you know taking taking body shots on on slap shots with their their bodies it was the right place to be you know for the last 8 minutes of the game which were about as exciting as it gets and you've never seen the movie miracle not yet have you i have not uh-huh. i can't recommend it highly enough really good not just because it's an incredibly well made movie but because kurt russell who you know, at this point in his career, a lot of people know him from Escape from New York or Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two or something like that. He plays Herb Brooks, the coach, and and he 
he does such an amazing job playing Herb Brooks to the point where I think if the movie, because the movie got released before the Olympics, so it got released in January of 2004. And I think if it had been released at the end of 2003, he would have been in the conversation for like best actor awards kind of thing because he's he's just he's perfect. He looks like Herb Brooks, sounds like him, and he's just so buttoned up. And it's just the opposite of sort of the the long-haired Kurt Russell that you're used to. Where do you rank that, um, the U.S. beating the Soviets? In the semifinals, I always have to remind myself that it wasn't the final game, right? They beat Finland, I think, in yes. the finals. Yeah. Where do you rank that in terms of sports upsets? Uh, like in the United States? Well, just well, period. Like well, you, got, you. you got UVA Chaminade. Sports. UVA with Ralph Sampson has got to be way up there. Sports Illustrated uh, rated it the number one sports moment of the 20th century. Yeah, I'm putting it really high. So maybe right. Probably yeah, UVA one. Chaminade is is a game which this may come as a surprise. Not everybody remembers as well. They haven't as, made uh, the movie about that yet. Yeah. So UVA had Ralph Sampson, one of the dominant big men. They were who, the number one team in the country. Who had yeah. a somewhat, I'm going to say, as a Houston fan, somewhat disappointing pro career. Had some highlights, but yeah, took a punch at Jerry Seesting. <laughs> It was, it was with not your great, Boston Celtics. It was not, not a great moment. Not a great moment for Ralph. Not yeah. a great moment. Number one, I, I, I'd probably be okay with that. Yeah. Best yeah. Olympics movies. Uh, that's uh, there are not a lot of Winter Olympic movies, so that's that's number one in the Winter Olympic category for me anyway. Um, unless you want to make a really big argument for the Cutting Edge or or. What about Eddie the Eagle? Cool Runnings. Cool Runnings. I haven't seen Eddie the Eagle. Oh, that, that was supposed so to be pretty good. good. So good, but I, I haven't seen Miracle. Yeah. So. Um, Does Slapshot? So, can I work Slapshot in there? No, but you can work Blades of Glory in there because Blades really? of Glory, they didn't, and I love this, that the reason the Olympics, and I don't even remember in Blades of Glory what they used as a proxy for the Olympics, but um, of course the International Olympic Committee was like, hey, if you want to use our logo and you want to use our name, you have to pay us. And the producers of the movie were, were basically like, this is a Will Ferrell comedy about. Men's ice figure skating. So no, we're not gonna. We're gonna save ourselves that money, and we're we're not gonna do that. But that holds up. Yeah. So it actually, yeah, there aren't a lot of great uh, Winter Olympics movies. The the best Olympics movie, uh, probably most would say, Chariots of Fire. Uh, yeah. I, well, yeah. I'm talking I, about most. Not talking about you. Okay. What are you going to bat for? Um, I'd probably put that up there. Yeah, one one best picture. So I was doing a little research, and the most interesting thing that I found out about *Chariots of Fire* is there's a scene uh, added to the American version um, in order to prevent the film from getting a G rating. Uh, they have uh, a couple of the athletes getting off uh, a train and sort of bumping into some. Uh, some veterans, some World War One veterans, and one of them uses an obscenity at the other about like the baggage or something. Just, and that's enough to get a PG. Why? And that's and they they just so didn't want the G rating because they, they inserted one cuss word to to make sure that they got a PG because they didn't want people to think, oh, this is a kids movie. Yeah, yeah, like Kiss of Death G rating. That's smart of them. That's you know, didn't know that. That's a, that's a smart move. Um, yeah, I guess I'd go with Chariots of Fire. Because again, I mean, there aren't a lot of Winter Olympics movies. There aren't a lot of Summer Olympic they movies. One, one best uh, best picture that year. So I don't know what else is is in the running there. Um, uh, one movie I'll recommend uh, a documentary uh, entitled "The Real Dream Team." So the the Dream Team refers to in 1992, the Summer Olympics allows professional basketball players. So we send. America sends its best players, and we just destroy everyone. Um, and there's a documentary called "The Real Dream Team," and it's um, it's about uh, the Yugoslavian Olympic basketball team because this is after the fall of the Soviet Union. So, uh, so in '88, when the Soviet Union wins the gold medal in basketball, it does so um, largely on the strength of players from Yugoslavia, and so. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the um, Sharunas Marshalonis, who played at the time for the Golden State Warriors, raised a bunch of money, um, including because uh, he was friends with the Grateful Dead. So the Grateful Dead put on a 
just a charity concert to raise money for the Yugoslavian national team to to get warm ups and that kind of thing. And uh, they ended up getting, I think they ended up getting the bronze medal. But it's a very fun movie. Um, if you like basketball, but it's also just good storytelling and and sort of for anyone who wants to know anything about um, what was life like for athletes uh, under the Soviet Union, um, it gives you a window into sort of like what their life was like, you know, before and after. So, which we've talked about this, but my my earliest one of my earliest sports memories, and I think the first time I realized that life can be unfair was the 1972 Summer Olympics when it looked like the US was going to win the gold in basketball and then the Russians the Soviet Union put 3 seconds back on the clock and to Close. their cre- to their credit it was just blatant cheating i mean i don't even remember what was the what was the the rationale it was a thin rationale that there had been I forget the rationale. I just remember that it wasn't a situation where the referees on the court said, "Okay, put a little bit more time back on the court." Right. It was an Olympic official, right, who happened to be from Russia, right, came out of the stands down to the sideline. The Kremlin said basically, <laughs> yeah, and said, "Put some more time back on the clock." And they essentially got uh, an, another crack at a last-second shot, which they hit and they and they won. I know you want to get to. Your question for Mac about comedy, but um, I, I can't let this pass without mentioning that my favorite uh, demonstration Winter Olympic sport that only happened once, and it was in the 1920s, was uh, something, and I'll, I won't pronounce this correctly. It was uh, the word is skijaring, S K I J O R I N G, skijaring, and it's skiing behind horses. So just like like you know before the snowmobile uh, we wanted to go fast on skis and so you know what I just hitched up behind I hitched up a horse and I skied behind it I, I would watch that I think if they brought that back now that would be yeah I think people would watch that although would you go track or would you go um, point to point like hey this is because I think you can go like maybe once, twice around the track. Although I think that the the, well, I think the tri- curves the curves would add an element of danger that could be great or could be terrifying. Well, yeah, possibly I think, both. I, th- I think traditional skijaring was just point to point, right? I, <laughs> I mean, I mean, Barker remembers it from the twenties. But Dan, what do you think? Wouldn't the horses like with their you know hooves destroy the track after because it's snow? Because it's skiing, right? Well, that's why that's where the conspiracy aspect comes in. You, it's like, oh, my guy got had to go last on the track, and so that's why, you know, as opposed to that country, they got to go first. But no, I think I think you just go, yeah. As Max said, you go traditional, you go old school, you go point point to point. So okay. so now that we've brought up horses, I've got to mention, <laughs> and I'm going to take us back a bit. But I think that my one of my fondest memories of radio interviews that we've ever done. Was a segment that I cooked up right before the Kentucky Derby, and it was called "Are You My Jockey?" And I still, to this day, oh, that's right. I don't know if I was way ahead of my time or way behind my time. I just know that for whatever reason, it didn't quite work. I was not of my time. But here's the idea: Tom and David hosting the show. I bring a real jockey on, and I bring a jockey impersonator on, and Tom and David each get to ask like five questions of each person, and then at the end of it all. They have to decide who the real jockey is. And the way they do that is they say, Are you my jockey? So it's brilliant. And Steve Broido, the man behind the glass, Wait, did you just call your own idea brilliant? Brilliant, brilliant in a way that like you don't want to look directly at the sun. Right. You know, yes, that sort of yes, thing. Yes, absolutely. Okay, okay great. <laughs> okay. So, and we had this great lead in. It's a caballo conundrum. It's an equestrian enigma. It's the ultimate test of your horse sense. Nice. I still remember the, the copy. Strong. So, first jockey, I found a real jockey in California, and he was game. And we talked through all the things about being a jockey. One of the big things with being a jockey, you may know, is making your weight because you have to get below a certain weight before you race. And that's a really big deal with jockeys. I mean, that's why you don't see a lot of heavy jockeys, right? Um, so, he agreed to do it. And the other guy, and this is where, and I will call this brilliant, the other guy I got to impersonate the jockey was Johnny Whitaker. And if you don't know that name, he was a child star in Family Affair and Sigmund and the Sea Monster, all these shows in the 70s. 
And for some reason, his name popped into my head as a good jockey impersonator. Can I just interrupt and say that this is the the perfect Venn diagram overlap of <laughs> how Matt Greer thinks? Because yes. it's a creative idea. That doesn't quite work. No, no, no. It's a, it's a creative programming idea that involves a lot of explanation, some level of explanation, um, some work on the part of the of in this case David and Tom. Yeah. Um, so there's so there's some there's some brain work that they have to do. There's some intu, you know in, intuiting intuition that they have to employ. And the key factor, what really makes it the perfect overlap, is it involves. Um, uh, a one-time iconic television star, a 1970s B-list star. Yeah, and it went off. It went off the rails early on. And, Johnny and, and, Johnny Whitaker probably wouldn't even have made Love Boat. No, he probably wouldn't have. But but to his credit, he was a gamer. And I said, I know this is going to sound strange. And this is back when you would call someone. I said, I know this is going to sound strange. I have this idea, and I need you to be a jockey impersonator. And he said, sure, whatever, because he had something to promote, right? And that's the key. If you can promote something for somebody, then they're usually game. And he was doing well when Tom and David asked him these questions, but then it fell apart because the last question they asked him is, what's the toughest part about being a jockey? And I had sent him these talking points. And for that one, it was going to be making weight, right? Making your weight, right? You got to make your weight before a big race. And for some reason, he couldn't find his notes or he couldn't see his notes. So instead, when they asked him, what's the toughest part about being a jockey? He said, staying on the horse. <laughs> and it, just, it wow. just gave him away. And you're like, no, that's, I'm not a jockey and I never have been, but that's not the toughest part. It, it can't be. It can't be. It can't be. <laughs> Staying You're not on the a horse. very good jockey. You're a terrible that's, jockey. That's hard. Didn't you have? Didn't you have former Congressman Ben Jones, best known as yes. Kudrow on the Dukes of Hazzard? Yes. Didn't you have him in a similar type of thing where it was that like was, you have two people, and and yes. one of them is real in their occupation? That was are you my trucker? So and that was and that did work because I found the winner of the like long haul trucking championship. This guy was Dale Knox, and he was this championship trucker, and they have these competitions. And then I got Ben Jones, aka Cooter from Dukes of Hazard, and he was a great trucker impersonator, and he he just embraced it. So so there is. Are we going to Dan? I, I, I just didn't know if Dan wanted to weigh in on, frankly, anything of the last fifteen minutes. Well, it's Bill, Bill is so <laughs> correct in that any any like plan that Mac makes it involves nineteen seventies TV stars every single time. Every every everything he talks about, every reference he makes, it's either the Houston Astros or nineteen seventies <laughs> TV stars. Dan, Dan, I call those Motley Fool exclusives. In in, in Mac's defense. That plan, you know, just like on Scooby Doo, it's like this plan would have worked if it wasn't for you meddling kids. Yeah. That plan would have worked if it wasn't for Johnny Whitaker blowing it at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Although he, they knew early on he was, it was, it was not, it was not great. But, but are you the, my trucker? Was great. I was gonna say on the Ben Jones one. I forget if they picked Ben Jones. Oh no, no, they they didn't pick him because they asked him what's the strangest thing like you've ever transported, right? What's the strangest cargo? And they said Johnny Whitaker's horse. And he horse. said he said the Pinta, like as in the Nina, you know, one the of Pinta. Columbus's Santa ships. Maria. Yeah. yeah, and David kind of smoked him out. He's like, I didn't think that ship was still around. So you know, so and it was the, a financial show. <laughs> the history, the quick history, and I'll get to the point of the Motley Fool radio shows is the. AM, three hour live Which Saturday mornings. Correct. Saturday afternoon. Saturday afternoon. Noon to three. Noon, Noon to three. three. Yep. And that was for roughly how many years? Three years. Three years. Three years. And then PBS. NPR. And sorry, P NPR. For four. I years. was thinking at PBS because there was a PBS a special yeah. yep. uh, aired during uh, Pledge Drive and, one and, year, which is another story. And, and the beauty of the show we're doing now is that it's our show. So the NPR show, they had a very you know, clear idea. This is what we want the show to be. And you'll have Tom and David for the opening segment, then you'll have a CEO interview, then you'll take a few phone calls, and then you'll have another interview. And that's fine, except when it's not. In my experience with a lot of those shows, is especially with CEO interviews, a lot of CEOs have more to lose than they do to gain from an interview. So that doesn't always make for the most compelling interview. It's not to say we never interview CEOs, we do, but it is to say that when in doubt, I would much rather have our analyst talking about stocks around a roundtable, or talking to a journalist or a professor or someone who's much freer to give their opinion. 
versus a CEO who may be much more guarded and, and afraid to make a mistake. So I, I always feel like, in some weird sort of way, the most interesting CEO interview would be when you ask CEOs about anything except business. Because then they at least maybe feel a little f- freed up. Because otherwise, you risk getting like the you know the annual report. Let me share one thing about NPR. And NPR was was on balance. I think they were great. Great to great work to work with. with. Now, having said that, I'm gonna go a couple steps farther than what Mac just referred to in terms of like NPR feeling like no, this is our show, and we need to like you know. So there was a little bit more uh, a little bit more hands onness from NPR than was always warranted. And the example that I think best illustrates this is there was on one episode of the Motley Fool radio show on NPR, there was a reference to uh, Donald Trump and The Apprentice. And this is, this is I want to say, 2004? I'd forgotten this. At where, in 2000, this is a reference to Donald Trump, host of The Apprentice. And at the time, this was the number one show on television. Like this was the biggest thing on television. This is before Facebook, so you know, ask ask your parents about it, kids. Um, this, there's no doubt, who this is in reference to, and a note came back from NPR because they got to review the show before it went out to stations. And a note came back from NPR was, I think you need to add a line um, after. Either David or Tom, whichever one of it says, says it. Um, you need to add a like sort of a half sentence. This is Donald Trump, host of The Apprentice, and then you need to add something like comma um, the popular reality television show on NBC where Donald Trump blah 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 blah. And Mac, to his credit, basically was like, no. We're not doing that. I like how you went into an NPR faux whisper just to just <laughs> to convey. That's how the note. Came. How the note. And, re- and to his read, credit, Mac was know. like, you know what? Everybody knows who Donald Trump is, and everybody knows what The Apprentice is. And if they don't, well, I guess we're going to lose people. But we're not yeah. adding that back in. And <laughs> that's and that's part of why NPR. NPR's think- fact checkers have looked into this Apprentice that you're talking about and have discovered. That exactly. it's a show on NBC. <laughs> yeah, our audience probably doesn't know that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, at NPR, I think they they liked us because our sensibility was a bit different. And and another illustration of that is I was over there at NPR for an exercise when we were doing the show, and they teed up this question. They said, "Okay, if we want to promote tomorrow's morning edition, NPR's big morning news show, and we have two different ways, two different ways to tease it." Okay. One way to tease it is this is during the Iraq War, and we can say, you know, coming up tomorrow, you know, the latest on um, the war in Iraq. The other way to tease it is coming up tomorrow, a new study shows that owners, pet owners, end up looking like their dogs. Which would you choose to promote tomorrow's morning edition? And I'm like, is that even a question? <laughs> like, I mean, I'm not. I mean, the war is an, is is. Politics aside, the war is ongoing. It's not a new story. People know about it. Are you kidding? I mean, that's gold that I'm going to end up looking like my rescue beagle. <laughs> I mean, why would that even be a question? And it was. There was like debate. All right, get to your question. Well, so we've done this a couple of times. Um, unfortunately, we've, we've waited this long in the show because, as Chris has pointed out a couple of times, and I do believe this should be his catchphrase nobody's listening at this point. <laughs> To put on his, that could be the name of the show. I like that. Well, that's there. There was a little question uh, online or on Twitter or something about what a catchphrase that you could have, and that was my suggestion. Staying on the horse is mine (laughs) for the show. Uh, But in the past, we've gone over who's who's on the Mount Rushmore of your comedic influences. That that is who who are the four that you would point to. Hopefully, you've given this a little thought about not necessarily that you're, you're claiming yes. My comedy stylings are this, but you know my sense of humor. I'd, I'd probably have to count my mom and dad as together. But but my dad, I kind of learned early on that, um, you know, it's not whether you win or lose in life; it's whether it makes for a good story. So I and and I believe that, right? You're going to have your setbacks and you're going to have your your bumps and bruises, and is it story worthy? Oh yeah, absolutely. Those are there are certainly those experiences in life where you just go. This is going to make. Well, a this is terrible, but it, if, if nothing else, I got a pretty good story out of this. Yeah, yeah. those are usually travel stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, my father um, and my mother, 
a lot of laughter growing up. So um, are they are they one of I'm, the I'm gonna, uh, I'm, yeah, carving yeah, yes. those two together? Yes, into, yes, because because they, they kind of play off each other and it's, they're like it's, Laurel it's, and Hardy. Yes, they're, they're, yes, yes. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Uh, Mom and Dad. Now this is tough because I'm gonna. I may have to bump Carol Burnett, but but early on we watch a lot of Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett's strong, um, strong but, choice. But I'm I'm probably gonna have to bump her because I'm gonna bump her for Leslie Nielsen because I was so into Airplane, and then after Airplane, you'll probably remember after Airplane came out, maybe I'm gonna say top five or ten TV shows of all time, Police Squad. Sure. Did you watch Police Squad? Of course. Oh. So great. Didn't so good. Police Squad come before Airplane? No, I did. No. I looked after okay. Airplane came out. I think in around no, eighty. Airplane or so. gave them the license yes. to keep doing it. Okay. Na- Naked Gun came after Police Squad. That's it. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yes, because uh, yeah, because the uh, the title or the subtitle of of the first Naked Gun movie because they I think they did eighteen of them. Yeah, um, was uh, from the files of Police Squad. Yep. Yep. So Leslie Nielsen. Um, and then I know his name's come up a lot, but um, David Letterman. And, and one of the premises: Did you watch Police Squad? No. So the guest star would be sort of you Florence know, like, Henderson. Uh, Florence Henderson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and they would be killed in the first like twenty seconds <laughs> the, of the show. The opening like, credits. The opening they would credits. get killed in the opening credits. Always. I mean, it was just brilliant. <laughs> That's a sweet gig. You get a paycheck, and it's like, oh no, you're in like one scene. It's going to take us about three minutes to shoot. But the thing about Leslie Nielsen is you 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 forget that like he was a serious actor back in the day, and so you'll watch these old movies with Leslie Nielsen, and I'm just waiting. Like you're waiting for like Frank Drebin to yeah, just yeah he was kind of the heavy yeah, he, he was, he was the not heavy. he was not like the light comedy he he was straight guy or villain yeah and there were a couple of uh, 70s cop shows like I think there was an episode of Columbo where yeah. like Leslie Nielsen was the murderer where it's like which of course I saw later in life after I'd seen Naked Gun and the others and it's like what what are you what are you what are you doing <laughs> so funny um, you got one more. I get one more shoot. Are you keeping Carol Burnett in? I don't know, no, because I, I I've got and I've you've got, got two more. Okay, good. Because no, I've he's got, got the parents. He's got Leslie Nielsen and David Letterman. Um, oh, yeah, David Letterman. Letterman. Yeah, Letterman. Yeah, definitely. Letterman. We all had Letterman. Yeah, and Letterman from like his morning show, and then there's a great show. I mentioned this to Chris the other day. Um, in one of his, I think it was done for HBO, but it's called Looking for Fun, and it came out in like '81 or '82, and it is early, early Letterman. Have you seen his his new show? Yeah, I didn't. I, didn't, I the, wasn't crazy. I watched there, the first Obama show, one. Right? Yeah. Is there a second one? I, I didn't. Not yet. Not, it, uh, they've just released the Obama episode. Yeah, I, I was. I was. I was disappointed. Yeah. I mean, I thought the best parts of that were when Obama was interviewing Letterman. I thought that yeah. was much more interesting, which of course isn't really the show. So, um, the fourth is tough. Okay, here's what I'm wrestling with. I'm wrestling with Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, Homer Simpson. And I know that Homer Simpson doesn't write his own material. <laughs> so, in that case, it would be Matt Groening, wouldn't it be? Yeah. But yeah. he's probably written very little That's of That's true. The it, it may be like Homer Conan Simpson. O'Brien, because yeah. when I think of like The Simpsons in its heyday in the early 90s, that was who's yeah. writing that stuff? Like Conan and Conan's this team of writers. Stuff. Your Mount Rushmore I'm gonna, getting crowded. I'm going to no, go, yeah. go Steve Martin, and it's largely, I mean, the, guy, the guy's had an incredible career, but the jerk to me, you know, is standalone. So, Steve Martin. Does that work for you? I sure. I mean, there, there, there is, of course, a lot of overlap. You seem unhappy. No, that's just how he is. <laughs>